Hello and welcome to the 905er podcast. I am Roland Tanner. I am Joel McLeod. In a world where political opponents and journalists shout scandal at the drop of a hat, it can be difficult to spot when political behaviour crosses the line from a simple difference of political opinion or common or gardening competence into genuinely corrupt behaviour. The Greenbelt scandal currently enveloping Ontario's PC government appears to be a case when pretty much everybody agrees that scandal is the right adjective for the job. The Integrity Commissioner's report was damning in its conclusions. The interests of favoured developers were, quote, furthered improperly. How? By, quote, a process marked by misinterpretation, unnecessary hastiness and deception. Note that word, deception. What is deception? Lies, dishonesty, deliberately misleading statements. Deception in decisions that the government knew would make millions of dollars of profit for the beneficiaries of its deception. If that is not a description of political corruption, I don't know what is. There may be nobody in Ontario better qualified than our guest today to comment on every side of the Greenbelt scandal and the laws surrounding development in this province the Ministry of Housing aimed to circumvent. Jennifer Kiesmat is managing partner of Marquis Developments and the former chief planning for the City of Toronto, where she led a team of over 375 planners overseeing unprecedented growth and urban development. As a founding partner of the Office for Urbanism and subsequently Dialogue, Jennifer has worked in municipalities across Canada and around the world on urban design guidelines, official plan reviews and strategies for creating 21st century cities. She is a recognised expert in transit planning, heritage preservation, strategy development, sustainable economic development and the creation of walkable, complete communities. She has been involved on every side of the planning process and is one of Canada's most eloquent and passionate voices for vibrant cities and better urban design and growth. Through Marquee Developments, Jennifer is currently leading the redevelopment of over 2,000 new rental homes in the GTA. With that background and experience, it's no surprise that Jennifer Kiesmet has been one of the most outspoken commentators on Twitter about the current Greenbelt scandal. We invited her onto the podcast to talk about both the implications of the scandal and, just as importantly, the wider context of planning and development in Ontario that have helped bring us to this point. Welcome, Jennifer Kiesmet, to the 905 podcast. Um, we really appreciate you joining us today. Great to be here. Um, now, uh, the reason we invited you on, obviously, there's a there's a big scandal going on at the moment, and uh, you, you've been one of the people who uh, certainly has the qualifications in the right area. Who's been commenting extensively on on Twitter about about this scandal, and you know, scandal is a word that's overused very often in politics, and um, uh, you know, sometimes people claim there are scandals when it's not really that big of a deal. How big of a deal is the current Greenbelt scandal in Ontario? Um, well, I'm trying to think of something bigger. I can't think of something bigger, to be frank. Um, and the reason it's so big is because it's tied in with this gargantuan crisis that we have on our hands right now around providing housing, uh, and our inability to deliver housing. But it's also has the potential to rip the DNA out of our region, the viability of having a livable region, 
And it also has the potential to completely corrupt, and I don't use that word flippantly, I use it literally, corrupt our land use planning processes. And those land use planning processes and regulations, which all sounds very boring and technical, is really about protecting the public interest and ensuring that housing does truly get built. So in the absence of there being uh, any kind of accountability for what's happened, why would anyone follow the rules ever again? That's my question. Why wouldn't we all just go build houses in wetlands? We might as well if the rules don't apply anymore. And so I, I you know, the, in, you, you're, we're pulling a little string here. And once you pull it, the whole thing unravels. And I'm not sure most of us have even fully appreciated the extent of the unraveling that is underway right now, but it's it's big. Um, you know, the, the government's response to the scandal as it's been unfolding has been kind of a deny, then confess, then ask for forgiveness repeatedly. Um, recently, after the, uh, the Integrity uh, Commissioner's report said that uh, Minister Steve Clark had violated the rule book, you know, he stood up in front of the microphone and said, oh, you know, I'm sorry, mea culpa, back to work, and then a day or two later resigns. And I'm wondering, you know, did did his responsibility um, stop there? And I just want to, what, what's your take on the government's response to this scandal so far? You know, the, this, right, you know, just something this serious that, as you said, it's undermining our, our belief in how we can build our communities and our cities. What's your what's your what's your rating of the of the government's response so far that you've been seeing? Well, first of all, I'll take it one step back. It's not just undermining having a livable region and good cities and viable cities. This is undermining good governance at a very basic level. The government doesn't get to show up. A new party doesn't get to show up and do whatever the hell they for their friends and family. That's, that's actually not how a democracy works. You must operate within the rules and the playbook. And the minute you stop operating within the rules that exist, then you start getting kind of in a weird anarchy situation. Like why on earth would anyone else follow the rules? Why would people submit a planning application and pay millions of dollars, as I did two years ago for our first application, millions of dollars to go through a process to mm -hmm. seek approval to build a building in an open and transparent due diligence process that involves hundreds of technical reports. I'm talking uh, a thousand pages is what we submitted with our application. We assessed where the trees were. We didn't. We didn't environment. We we drilled boreholes to figure out where the water supply was. Um, we had a heritage report, an archaeology report. Why would you do any of that if you can just pay a very tiny amount of money to a political party that will then bend all the rules for you? So I think, first of all, that gets kind of back to the first question about the scale of what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with a question of how the government functions at a very basic level. Very basic level, and now with that, I have forgotten what your question was. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 
Fair enough. It happens on a podcast. Pissing off to my own heart, I have to say. (laughs) That was all my precursor to the answer, but I I think you did answer. But basically, you know, like, I'll I'll follow up with this because I think you touched on on something, and it it strikes the broader consent is this government. You know, we we, we keep hearing from developers that it's so hard to build. You know, the, the the consensus that we're hearing from the public dialogue from the federal and provincial conservative parties is that dreaded red tape and the, those municipal gatekeepers are blocking all this beloved house that we're going to get done. And, you know, that feeds into the developer line of, oh, it's just all this bureaucratic nonsense. It's not needed. And you're saying like, it is kind of needed because, you know, we, we need to hook the stuff up to sewer lines. We need to hook the stuff up to hydro lines. And we need to make sure that we just don't have blocks of un of ugly buildings block after block and you know i i i i, I see your point of it coming down to a, a question of like just governance like what's the point of it if we just should build whatever and now we're testing we're getting into like a philosophical debate now on you know what what's the use of government in our day-to-day lives or just you know to kind of help build a society does government have a role here uh, in, in building our building our cities and, and and how we want to live. Well, if they don't, then I don't know why we're paying taxes because that's their whole well, job, right? Like mm-hmm. you know, we're linked together as a society through a series of processes and infrastructure investments. Quite frankly, and it's also at the end of the day, we all acquiesce to being a part of communities and societies. Because we know that there's certain things that one of us can do that can infringe on the rights of the other. Mm-hmm. And this is why we can't have the Wild West. I'll give you a really specific example. When I was chief planner, uh, we had a building that had been approved before I got there, by the way. So I'm not taking responsibility for this. Um and it was a condo tower built beside another older 1960s um tall building. It was over 20 stories. When the condo opened and people started flushing their toilets, the people in the 1960s uh, building, rental building next door, lost their water pressure. And you could no longer take a shower or get the, you couldn't get the soap out of the shampoo, the shampoo out of your hair in the shower because there was a problem with the infrastructure because no one had kind of looked more broadly in a very sophisticated way of whether there was a tipping point for the water trunk in that corridor. And so when I learned of this with, you know, through my colleague, Lou DiGeronimo, who is still the head of Toronto Water, we came up with a plan to actually create a build out vision for the entire area so that we could identify the level of infrastructure required so that this wouldn't happen again. <laughs> because can you imagine suddenly a condo gets built next door, but now you you can't get the shampoo out of your hair in the shower because there's not enough water pressure because no one planned for that? So this really, that example kind of, you know, and you can look at things like road infrastructure and transit capacity and access to schools, all of those things, we take a comprehensive approach in planning them because we know that if you have a house to live in, but there's no school for your kids, or there's no transit to get you to your job, or there's no park where you can throw a baseball, 
we know that that's like a pretty compromised quality of life. <laughs> like that housing, it's not that useful. It's not that useful at all. And, and there's there's a kind of, I mean, uh, all those things cost money and someone's going to pay the bill somewhere along the line. The, the, the old way of doing it, the way that it was meant to be covered, or at least a significant amount meant to be covered was in development fees. Uh, and those have been cut back dramatically. And if you go through the sort of MZO or, uh, you know, if you just sidestep the entire process and just get the government to give you the go ahead, none of that money is then coming in, which is, I kind of feel like someone should be pointing out that's basically just a tax increase to all the residents because that's, they're going to have to pay for it. Um, uh, it's kind of a confidence trick, don't you think? Well, it's it's an interesting question, and it's philosophical in some ways, which is really this question of who pays for growth. Should the people who already live in a place pay for growth, or should newcomers pay for growth? And overwhelmingly, we've decided as a society that newcomers will pay, and that's why housing is so expensive. So we keep the costs artificially low with respect to our property taxes, uh, and then we try to layer on any new costs onto, onto new housing. Look, it's a bad model any way you slice it. The truth is we need a fundamentally different approach to delivering infrastructure for our communities because it's not enough, although I do think you know, look, this isn't, I'm talking about the 416 now, which is we need higher property taxes for sure. Ours have been artificially suppressed. And we've been able to do that because we have been putting all those costs on onto new development. Uh, but there hasn't been a model for growth that actually tackles the magnitude of investment that is required, other than kind of saying, well, somehow we're going to lob this onto the cost of new housing. And by lobbing it onto the cost of new housing, we've made that housing really expensive to build. That's all there's to it. So at the end of the day, there's like an overarching question we need to ask, how do we want to pay for infrastructure as a society? How do we want to pay for it? But the model we have right now doesn't work. You mentioned you are now currently, uh, your sort of primary job, if you like, is you're actually a developer. And I believe you're the first developer we've spoken to on, on, on this podcast, perhaps not a typical developer, no, <laughs> but, but very much. Uh, but you're you are building housing, um, and I think it's worth. Well, I'm very interested in hearing your experience and what you're doing there, as a contrast to our kind of expectations of what development looks like. Um, and you know, I think it's, it's widely acknowledged that, that the real crisis in housing is affordable housing, and yet it's very. You know, you're one of the few specialist affordable housing developers in the province as far as I know. So perhaps you could speak some some about that for a while. Sure. So, well, for those who are watching, you can actually see behind me one of my projects, um, but we have many projects in the pipeline, but this is one that, that we publicly announced, which is it's 12 buildings arranged in a landscape. They're mostly missing middle buildings, so between six to eight stories. And we've put an enormous emphasis on both affordability and community amenities. So there's an affordable daycare. There's a new recreation facility. We have a coffee shop right at the center of the community, community gardens. So the objective has been to create a really high quality environment, um, but to ensure that it's to ensure that it's um, mixed use as well. 
What I will say is that um, I'm in a really unique position because I started out in the private sector, built a very large planning and design firm, which is a national practice, which is thriving until this day. I was recruited to become the chief planner at the city of Toronto. So I was on the regulatory side, on the other side. And now I've gone, uh, I've kind of gone into like this unusual space because I'm bringing both of those two worlds together to actually get housing built. And the reason I wanted to do what I'm doing is because I looked around and said, hey, no one is doing this. (laughs) This needs to be done. What I underestimated was how hard it would be to get it done. Um, We have a tremendous number of, well, we have thousands and thousands of units in the development pipeline, but we spend, I will say we waste most of our time kind of going through a lot of bureaucratic red tape, you know, to Joel's earlier point. Some of it's though really important, right? Like this site is right adjacent to a ravine. So um, respecting the TCRA guidelines was really important to us. So 34 acres of our site is actually green space where we will not develop because we want to ensure that, you know, from our perspective, um, the viability of the larger ecosystem in which we place housing is just as important as the housing that we build. You know, if we kill the, our own habitat, well, we're no mm-hmm. further ahead, are we? The, like the conversation that we're hearing in, in the public here is very much get out of the way of private enterprise. And that private enterprise is going to come in and save this problem. I mean, that's kind of, we're hearing that the, definitely at the federal level. Kind of at the provincial level, that's essentially what Doug Ford's plan seems to have been is, you know, Bill, uh, uh, Bill 23 uh, uh, to get the development charges removed from municipalities and to open up the green belt. Um, that's what we're, we're talking about here. And this drive of just private enterprise knows what's best. They're going to get it done. They're going to come in and they're going to save the day. And we're going to get these 1.5 million homes built. Is that is that a, a safe like is that is that even feasible to turn this entire project over to the private um to private enterprise? Like do they even have the resources to be able to meet this need demand? Forget about the motivation or the capability. Well, I think it's kind of a strange comment, quite frankly, because mm-hmm. what do you mean by private enterprise? And let's take the example of long-term care homes, <laughs> right? Um it's the privatized long-term care homes that have been the biggest disaster through the COVID pandemic, where we've seen an astronomical amount of unnecessary suffering and death. So, you know, two thumbs up for private enterprise? I don't think so. Uh, there's actually a tremendous amount that we do in the public sector that we do extremely well. Um you know, there's a whole variety of things in the public sector that we do extremely well and services that we provide for a relatively small amount of money. If you just think of all the things that exist in a municipality, from parks to roads to policing to community services to amenities for newcomers, we do all those things with a pretty small amount of money when you look at the level of investment that we that we put into them. So when we talk about private enter- enterprise, it's just such a broad, sweeping, amorphous kind of statement. Eh, I don't get it. I don't know what that means. Should we be drawing on the expertise of industry that knows how to build housing to solve our greatest challenges around housing? Yes, that I will say yes to. Should we be 
recalibrating the incentives such that those who know how to build housing are focused on building the types of housing that we need most. And I would argue that what we need most is affordable rental housing. Should we recalibrate the incentives so that more developers who know how to build condos for investors, but let's face it, we don't need any more of those. What we need is housing for families in high quality communities that have the amenities of everyday life in close proximity, right? Daycares, schools, parks, all those good things. Should we be providing incentives so that people who know how to build housing are building the kind of housing that we need? My answer to that is yes. But I think talking about private enterprise, like it's something that's unified, it's actually not. And in fact, I would even argue when we look at what's happened in the green belt, you've had a handful of people who are not, well, some of them are developers, but some of them aren't. Some of them are Chinese investors <laughs> who don't know how to build a thing. And yet we are pretending they're like the private enterprise that will build housing. That's just silly and ridiculous and fanciful and not based in truth. So we need to be specific about who we're talking about. We and want I, the industry that knows how to build housing to build housing for us. And I just have a quick follow-up then I'll throw it over to you, Roland. Uh, so after you saying all that, do you think that this current provincial government is the one to spearhead that that movement going forward? Well, the evidence of the past month is absolutely not. The evidence of the past month is that this government is playing games with us mm -hmm. <laughs> and thinks that Ontarians are really stupid. <laughs> really, like how stupid do they think we are? The Auditor General's report has indicated that 58% of the lands that were proposed to be taken out of the Greenbelt would take about 25 years to get the infrastructure in place before you can build housing. <laughs> like, hello, we're in a housing crisis. We have GO Transit stations in our region with surface parking lots where if this government so decided they could start building housing tomorrow. Tomorrow, instead of farmers' fields where there are no roads, no sewers, no electricity, no amenities anywhere nearby because no one anticipated that this would be turned into housing. So this government, I had hoped that the new housing minister would go back into the recommendations that his own task force made, that the premier's task force on housing affordability, they made 55 recommendations, only three of them have been implemented. Um, all of those recommendations and that task force said, our problem isn't access to land. That's not the problem. So let's not get distracted by that. So I'm very concerned right now that we don't actually really have any political will to get housing built. We've got political will to, you know, sell off precious, you know, environmental lands in a friends and family sale. We are seeing that, but we're not seeing any real serious effort to address the housing crisis we're not it, not yet it's really just been a gift to land speculators not to not to develop not to development but to people who want to speculate who take land that was because it was just part of the green belt not worth a whole lot that's now worth a ton because you can build on it at whatever point in the future i mean it, it's really infuriating 
coming back to those incentives for uh, building affordable housing or building um, uh, rental accommodation in particular, and, and this is a point I've raised with a, with a few other people sort of involved in uh, housing in one way or another o- over the months and years. How is rent control ultimately, and I say this, I'm currently a renter, and as a renter, rent control is awesome. Uh, however, I also kind of can see my landlord's perspective of like, uh, we're in a situation where we've got 10% interest or whatever going on at the moment. Uh, what is my incentive to to build property when I can't even control what I charge for um, uh, for what people living in this this uh, accommodation will have to pay? Now I know that's been adjusted a bit by the, by the province, but uh, are there too many things in place that actually just act as a major discouragement to to investing in rental property? There are some things. I wouldn't say rent control is the crux of the problem um, because most, uh, yeah, I wouldn't say rent control is the crux of the problem, but we can speak to that in detail. But I'll give you an example of a very specific um, incentive that the government could put in place to get more rental built, and that would be the forgiveness of the HST. Frequently, on, on most projects, most rental projects, the HST is higher than the developer profit. So just think about that for a minute. Mm. Why is the government? Why is the government taking so much HST on on new rental housing when we need rental housing so urgently? Um, so there are projects that are you know on the margins that right now developers are like, mm, I'm not sure if I can build this. It's a bit risky. But if you forgave the HST, they would go get a shovel in the ground. So that's an example of an incentive that the government can put in place. That's a a tool that the government has that they could put in place that would unstick some of the housing projects that are currently stuck are not and are not move, moving to market. So that's a that's a really really critical one. Um, the other one is using government owned land. You know the the high cost of land is a challenge. Well, government is uniquely positioned because they don't own that land to generate revenue from it. They own that land to serve a public good. So why are we not using that land to deliver on a public public good? Um, just, just to clarify, you're not advocating selling off the public land. You're advocating transforming the land into housing or- Transforming that land into housing. So taking public land okay. and building housing on it. And you know, I'm always a proponent of the government hanging on to its assets and resources to the extent that it needs to, or that's viable. But um, you can build essentially rent-controlled affordable housing on government-owned land, and you will be transitioning that land into a public good in perpetuity. Um, and I will point out that our development here behind me that you see in the photo too bad for those of you who are just listening, but it's a very pretty picture. It, it is. I can I can vouch. It's a great picture. <laughs> hey, everybody, um, if you haven't subscribed to our YouTube channel yet, now's the day to do it. <laughs> I didn't mean to click click the ad button, but I guess I did. <laughs> um, but we are imposing rent control on ourselves in this project we because it's something that as a company we believe in as a public value and a public good. So our affordable units, we will be keeping affordable in perpetuity. And we've structured our model in such a way to be able to do that. So there's no reason why the government can't do that on its on its own lands. And if you, you know, peek around 
the 905, you'll see lots of one-story fire stations or one-story mm-hmm. libraries that could very easily be intensified with housing. You could build a state-of-the-art library in the podium and build some housing above or a parking lot beside a library. You could build housing on that parking lot and put the parking below grade. There's lots of solutions for using land that the government already has that can kind of you know, get around some of the challenges of the high cost of housing that we see today. I guess, I mean, I, mean, so, I, mean, I, I grew up overseas, as you can tell from my accent, and, and I, I grew up in a country that had acres and acres of municipally owned and operated affordable housing um and i guess the problem with our sort of regime here if you like is is that a municipality can't kind of go to the bank and say give me a loan we want to build twenty thousand houses in our city uh because you they're not allowed to go into debt uh is that one of the sort of barriers that to say the municipality is saying well we could be a landlord and we could be a very good landlord and it wouldn't cost in the long term it would actually maybe be a, a something that would make money for the city uh, or is that just a naive kind of perspective well i wouldn't say it's naive but i would say it is different everywhere and i i think in some ways you've overcomplicated it a little bit because really it's this simple a municipality has land there's developers out there who know how to build housing partner with those developers who already know how to build housing right like you don't have municipalities don't have building departments that build housing to the point that was made earlier that, that you know the provincial government hasn't built a single home they don't build housing all they do is enable the building of housing through policy so let's get our municipalities to use their land to enable the building of housing and that can be structured in a lot of different ways it can also be structured through land leases right the 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 government you know amsterdam's a fascinating city it's one of my favorite cities um i'm i'm dutch so i come by it honestly but the fascinating thing about Am- amsterdam is that i think it's something like 75% of the land is owned by the municipality and that's one of the ways that they actually it's it's almost like a way that they mitigate prices getting too high is con- by controlling the price of land so you know we using um municipally owned lands uh in a land lease scenario where you bring in a developer who will do the thing that developers do well real developers not these you know schlucky people we're talking about in, in <laughs> that are engaged in the, in the, in the in the green belt but real developers like people who have construction companies um they have drywallers they they build housing Bring them in as a partner to do the thing they do well, which is build housing. And the municipality can continue to own and operate it if they want. But in general, we haven't done very well at owning and operating housing either as a public sector. So my position is we'll just have rent controls in place, like secure units as affordable housing. doesn't matter if you live in a unit that you can afford. You don't care who owns it. You care that you can afford it, that it's well-maintained right? We haven't done a good job in the public sector. It has to do with political cycles, in my opinion, in maintaining housing. So I'm not a huge fan of the government actually owning and operating the housing, but I think the government should use the tool they have, which is the regulatory regulatory authority to set the rent. And you know, we're we're doing that voluntarily on mm-hmm. our TL Green project because we want to show we're a different kind of player that actually cares about the public interest. It's the problem that, you know, we turn, 
I keep hearing the 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 notion that we turned real estate into uh, a financialized industry, right? Like we, we you, you watch HGTV; it's an entire TV channel based on, "Hey, flip this house." You know, right? You buy a house. I'm a, I'm gonna change the flooring and put a new light fixture in, and now I'm gonna add on fifty thousand dollars to the to the price of it. And that everybody said, "Oh, this is not a great investment." And I don't, I don't, I don't know if that's the general, that's the motion, the motion that we're in, but that just seems like kind of the, what we're fighting up against. That it's we've turned housing instead of like it's a place to live, it's a place that you raise a family in, you're part of a community that you go to school, you go to the park, you you play street ball with the kids down the street kind of idea. We've changed that into no, this is your, this is your nest egg, and if you don't sell this off within. 15 years to recoup your costs, you're losing out. Are, are, are we, like, is it a matter of just re-educating the public in terms of stop thinking of your home as an investment? Think of it as a home. Honestly, Joe, you're singing my song. Like <laughs> you really are. I think this is where we've really screwed up and low interest rates enabled a little bit, like the kind of this feeding. Right frenzy of thinking of housing as an investment. And I do, I do lay the blame at the foot of our federal government as well. And there, this narrative around housing as a nest egg. The truth is, if some people can make a lot of money off of housing, and by the way, you know, most people born within a certain time period, I'm actually in that time period, um, they're going to make way more off off an individual unit of housing than any developer ever will. <laughs> um, the person who like took the risk, financed it, hired everybody. Um, there's a relationship between some people making a crap load of money off housing and other people not being able to access housing. Those right. two things are tied. And until we start to acknowledge that and say, hey, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. What do we want in this country? Because I know what I want. I I don't want people living on the street in my city. Mm-hmm. I don't want that. I would rather have less myself than have people living on the street in my city. I know what I want. I want my kids and my grandkids someday to be able to live in this city. And I'm having, I'm struggling to get my head around that based on what we've seen. So I think we have to have a national discourse on what kind of a country we want to be, because we've really shifted over the past 10 years to become a place where we've prioritized investors over prioritized, you know, people well, having a home to live. I mean, like, it, uh, well, StatsCan will, uh, will back up your claims there because, I mean, everybody says, Depending where you are, everybody said, "Oh no, we're a, we're a resource-rich country, and resource extraction is the number one industry." And it is, in fact, not. I mean, everybody assumes oil is the number one industry in Canada, and it's you know a distant third to real estate, which is the number one in, industry. And I, I think, well, if that's the case, then as, as you just said, like why why do we have people at risk of being evicted from homes, or or or, or potentially not being able to pay mortgage payments because of like in, in an industry like that like it's something i can't i can't square that round peg into the square hole of how how is it the bet number one industry yet we're at the risk of people losing their homes and places to live well it, you know i i don't know exactly the answer to that question other than it's precisely because it's treated as an industry mm-hmm. and 
the fact that um, some people do exceedingly well at the expense of other people being able to have access to a stable home. I'll, you know, I'll give you an example. Something that's really quite fascinating to me is um, my mother is from a beautiful town in Harlem called Dordrecht, or in Harlem, which is just outside of Amsterdam. My dad is from Dordrecht. And in Harlem, many years ago, I went to visit a great uncle who was, um, it, it was an executive at one of the biggest companies in in Holland. And we went to visit him in his home, which was just down the street from where my mother was raised. And um, this was like 20 years ago. And I was absolutely flabbergasted because we walked up to his house and his house was a little, very modest row house. And he'd lived in it his whole life because as he kind of moved up the food chain at his company, there was, it was never like he thought about having more housing because he had the housing he needed. And there was a barber that lived next door to him and a school teacher that lived on the other side of him. And he he was an executive in one of the largest companies in the Netherlands. And it never occurred to him to go out and buy a mansion. And it never occurred to him that he shouldn't live on the street with his barber and his school teacher and that they shouldn't all have access to very similar housing. And that may sound really socialist. <laughs> I don't know what people think of that. But I remember coming from Canada. I remember visiting him. And being very and being quite flabbergasted that it was such a fundamentally different way of thinking about housing. Housing was not about prestige. It was not about showing right. your wealth. It was not about you know the idea of a starter home and then another home and then another home. Right. None of that. It was about this is housing where my family can live, where I can raise raise my children. Um, and, and my neighbors can too, and my neighbors have that too. And it's a very different approach to housing than I think this phenomenal rut we're in right now, where we see housing as a tool to upward mobility. And by definition, that means some people just can't get on the ladder. We're coming up in their time and I just want to throw in a couple of anecdotes coming right out of your anecdote, uh, which is, uh, um, there's a town in Scotland called Glenrothes, which is one of the new towns um, that was built in the kind of between the 50s and the 70s, really. And I'm not going to claim it's it's at the top of most people's list of places to live, but it was designed very much on that kind of social. It was a, at that time very much a socialist um, uh, objective of the the local GP should live in the same street as the coal miner, and they were coal miners in that town. Uh, so there's a mixture of income groups uh, on any given street. And, and uh, you know, I would have to go and look up the research, but the, the reputation was that it actually worked very well. And although the housing was modern and, and not, like I say, not always the most desirable, if, if you want like the white picket fence kind of approach, that socially it, it actually worked uh, quite well. Um, and yeah, I mean, these are things we kind of, you know, we, we live in cities that have been excellent at separating income groups from each other. I mean, to an extent, we're now separating cities on income lines. So, you know, if you live in um, Hamilton, Halton area, if you're a lower income, you're gonna live in Hamilton. If you're a higher income, you're gonna live in Burlington. And if you really have a high income, you live in Oakville. Uh, and that's something that the that, that kind of, uh, yeah, we, we need to be sort of more courageous about addressing, I think. Uh, 
so I mean, I'm kind of just endorsing what you've already said, but I mean, maybe you could sort of finish up with a, with a point about uh, you know how how we should be viewing housing and development in, in a kind of more grandiose and more uh, 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 ambitious way uh, in the future. I, I really like the way you put that. I think that um, we have assumed that this notion of stratification is inherent to housing. We've assumed that that's okay. And it's actually biting us in the ass right now. Um, in some ways, in very ironic, ironic ways. If you think, for example, in Toronto, it used to be that living across the street from the park was phenomenal and increased your property values because, whoa, you had a park across your street. But you know what's happening today? If you have a park across the street, there's a risk that there's tents across your street and a lot of homeless people living across your street. So ironically, we've come full circle of, you know, trying to create these very socially stratified places for people to live. And it's just kind of crashing into each other again to the point where now you have very very expensive housing and people living in tents adjacent to each other. <laughs> um, and maybe we needed a more moderate approach. Um, and I'll bring this back to the comment about, you know, the financialization of housing, which everyone talks about. But I think, I think that language has value because it just demonstrates how we've sort of completely broken our housing system and we're not going to fix it by, putting incentives in place for first-time homebuyers. Like, that's <laughs> not how you fix the magnitude of the problem that we've created. We need a fundamentally and dramatic reinvention of our approach to housing. And you could argue that social stability in this country hinges on that. Do you see that coming anywhere down the line? I mean, we're, we're, we're in the midst of an unprecedented housing crisis. And what you just said, I don't hear that anywhere in the in the national provincial municipal discourse i don't know as i'm talking to you i'm feeling like you know uh, we're all gonna I need feel... a, some scotch after this yeah, exactly. <laughs> well as i'm talking to you i'm thinking man like there's got to be more i can do but honestly i'm like trying to build housing on a different model like that's what i'm trying to do right now and i'm trying to do that because i know how to read data and 10 years ago, I started looking at the data and going, holy smokes, we've got a major crisis coming this way. Mm -hmm. Now, a variety of factors have happened in that 10-year period to accentuate that crisis in ways that I could never have imagined. But this isn't sort of new. This has been, we've been building to this moment for a decade, 20, you know, even more than that, probably 20 years. Because we haven't talked at all about social housing and we do also need housing for those most in need, right? Mm -hmm. Like some people, there are people in our society and in our community who for a variety of reasons need us to take care of their housing needs at a very basic level. And the market won't do that. And we, we've been negligent in recognizing that and responding to that. You know, I'm focused on missing middle house, missing middle housing or housing that's attainable for middle income earners, in part because, look, I'm not the government. I know people think I, you know, tax them, but I don't. I'm not the government. I'm just kind of trying to do the thing I can do from the chair I sit in. And I feel like that's the thing I can do from the chair I sit in. But honestly, we need a much bigger shakeup than we're getting. 
because I think we're still tinkering at the margins and we've been tinkering at the margins for a decade now and we need a radical new approach. I think that's an excellent point to uh, to leave it. Um, thank you, Jennifer Keysmat, for joining us today. This is a really uh, pleasure, absolute pleasure of a conversation. And uh, yeah, we wish you all the very best with 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 what you're doing. And uh, we'll be interested to see uh, uh, how how uh, how you uh, get on with all the uh, all that housing that you are hoping to build. Fantastic. Thank you. And I love the name of your podcast. I think it's great. We're <laughs> reclaiming, reclaiming that in like two years. <laughs> <laughs> I totally do. It's why I came on. I was like, oh, that's so smart. The 905 is such an important part of our universe. And sometimes we, you know, it's kind of referred to in a disparaging way. So I, I love it. Love exactly. it. Love it. Everything exactly. you just said is what we say like all the time with this podcast. <laughs> No, you but, owned it, and I and I I think it's cr really critical and important to do. And I've done a lot of work in the nine hundred five, and I love the nine hundred five, and I think that it's filled with nothing but potential and wonderful humans. So there you go. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Take care. That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time. Listeners, I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. She said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back. And that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer in such a dirtbag. Yeah, that's not even strong enough words. This is totally a recipe for disaster and not to justify whatever is going to happen, but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works. If you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100% because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth. <laughs>